Over the last few months, we've been going verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark. And virtually all commentators agree that Mark is written in two acts. Two acts. And today, we come to the stunning and frankly sad conclusion of act number one. Let's go there together. To Mark chapter 8, we're going to look at verses 1 through 21. If you don't have your Bible with you, these verses are in the bulletin. Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 21. Verse 1. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, But where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. After he had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, It is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see, and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the four thousand, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these words, these life-giving and encouraging and strengthening words. We ask you today, Father, 
that these words would sink deeply into our hearts, into our souls, so that we might be changed from the inside out. And we ask these things in your Son's name. Amen. Okay, so far in Mark's Gospel, we have seen extraordinary teachings from Jesus. And we've seen extraordinary miracles from Jesus. Yet, yet, as the curtain comes down on act number one in Mark's Gospel, we see Jesus have confrontation with the Pharisees and irritation with his disciples. Why? Why? Because despite his teachings and despite his miracles, still almost no one knows who he is or why he has come. Not even his own disciples. And so this begs the question, why is it so difficult for us to understand who Jesus is and why he came? Why is that so hard? In this story, Jesus answers that question for us by revealing three important truths. Number one in your outline, our real hunger, our real hunger. Let's look at verses one through three. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. Now, if you were here a few weeks ago, if you're familiar uh, with the Gospel of Mark, this story will seem very familiar to you. Just a couple of chapters back, Jesus fed 5,000 people. Here, Jesus feeds 4,000. But there is a major difference between the stories. The difference is that back in chapter 6, it was 5,000 Jewish revolutionaries that he fed. It was essentially an army. But here, in our story today, it is 4,000 Gentile civilians whose lives are in legitimate danger. They are out in the middle of nowhere to hear Jesus. And so Jesus looks out in the crowd, realizes they're in trouble, and has compassion on them. Now, these are not primitive people. Let's go ahead and get that out of your minds. These are not Neanderthals. This crowd knows good and well what they're doing is dangerous. They know good and well there isn't a Chick-fil-A within 100 miles of their location. They get it. This is dangerous. They're a long way from home. They're a long way from food. In the first century, that's real bad. It's real risky. And so that makes you wonder, doesn't it? Why? Why are they doing this? Why are they risking, these Gentiles risking so much to follow and listen to this Jewish rabbi? Well, it's simple. They couldn't take their eyes off of him. They couldn't take their eyes off Jesus. Jesus was so extraordinary, so incredible, 
that they couldn't do anything else but follow him wherever he went. Their hunger for Jesus became greater than their hunger for food. I hope you see how amazing this really is. This crowd's story has nothing to do with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's not their story. They are not Jews. They are not a part of the chosen people of God. And they were treated by the Jews as outsiders, as unclean, as second-class citizens. And yet here they are in the desert, hanging on every word of a Jewish rabbi. Why? Because Jesus ain't like the other Jewish rabbis. His tenderness, his love, his authority, his strength awakened a spiritual hunger in them that they didn't even know was there. Mark is showing us that at our core, all of us, whether we realize it or not, we are hungry for Jesus. The most radical Muslim and the most hardened atheist hunger in their bones for Christ. You see, these 4,000 people in our story today were not shopping around for a new God. They were not looking for a new God to serve. They were not doing that. They were just like you and me. They're just living their lives, going to work, raising their children, getting by okay for the most part. But then something amazing happened. They met Jesus. And that changed everything for them. It changed everything. They met Jesus and they said to themselves, He is what we've been missing. He is what we've been missing. And Jesus agrees. He agrees. It's why he says in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. (laughs) I am the bread of life. And he who comes to me will never be hungry again. The whole Bible is telling us the story that we are all spiritually malnourished. We're spiritually starving. And that we do all kinds of things to try and feed our souls. All kinds of things. We think our careers will satisfy us. Or our children. Or our wealth. Or our good looks. I don't have that particular problem. Or our intelligence. Or fill in the blank, etc., etc., etc. If I just had this or if I just had that, I would be satisfied. And when none of that fulfills us, and it never will, when none of that fulfills us, well, then we give religion a try. Let's give religion a shot. And so we go to church, 
we drop some money in the plate, we join a life group, we buy the church merch, and none of that works either. As soon as we check one religious box, we're immediately hungry again. No amount of religious box checking satisfies us. It is never, ever enough. And this leaves us frustrated and exhausted. And you will hear so many people say, maybe some of you have said it in the past. I'm sure some of you have heard it from friends and family. Oh, I gave church a try and it didn't work for me. Of course it didn't. It never works. When you turn to religion, it leaves you nothing but high and dry. But why do we do this? Why do we turn to junk food? Why do we turn to our children? Why do we turn to our careers? Why do we turn to religious box checking? This junk food when the bread of life is available to us. Why? Why do we do that? And that brings us to point number two in your outline. Our real problem. Our real problem. You see, we have a real hunger, but we also have a real, a real big problem. Let's look at verse 15 together. Be careful. Jesus warned them, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Jesus here is assuming the role of prophet. He says, wake up, watch out. Watch out for what? The yeast of the Pharisees. And Herod. What in the world is Jesus talking about? <laughs> well, what is yeast? Well, yeast is fungus. It's fungus. And one tiny yeast cell will multiply itself. Slowly but surely it will multiply itself. And so, even if one tiny bit of yeast gets into a loaf of bread, slowly but surely it will multiply itself until the whole loaf is ruined. A good modern day equivalent to yeast is cancer. So Jesus is telling his disciples, watch out. Pay attention. There is a cancer spreading in you. And if you're not careful, you will end up with stage four spiritual cancer, just like Herod and just like the Pharisees. Now, this was no doubt shocking to Jesus' disciples. They're Jesus' friends. <laughs> They're in the boat with him. They're his allies. They're on his side. How could they have the same cancer as Herod, who killed John the Baptist? 
and the Pharisees who want Jesus dead. How could they have the same disease? Well, it's because we all have the same disease. Jesus is teaching his disciples and you and me that the world is not broken down into Jew or Gentile, Pharisee or disciple, Democrat or Republican, religious or irreligious, black or white, rich or poor. No. It's broken down into only two groups, holy and unholy. That is how God breaks down the world, holy and unholy. And the reality is, there's only one person in the holy group. And sorry to be the bearer of bad news today, but that person ain't you. And it ain't me either. Every single one of us has spiritual cancer. We do. And the name of the cancer is sin. And the specific sin Jesus is referring to here in this story is the sin of unbelief. Neither the Pharisees nor Jesus' own disciples have eyes to see or ears to hear Jesus. And the reason is because of their cancer. The cancer has killed their spiritual eyes and their spiritual ears. The Pharisees, though they have seen many before, are still asking for a sign from Jesus. Of course, the disciples have seen dozens and dozens and dozens of incredible signs by this point from Jesus. In fact, they've just seen 5,000 people fed in a very similar situation to this one. And yet they still do not believe. They still don't know who Jesus is or why he came. Now, what does this mean for you and me? Well, it means that our problem is not an evidence problem. We don't have an evidence problem. The famous atheist, Dr. Bertrand Russell, was asked what he would say to God if after he died and it turns out that he does exist. They said, you know, so if you stood before God, Dr. Russell, what would you say? And Dr. Russell said, well, I would ask him, why didn't you give us more evidence? Why didn't you give us more evidence? But Jesus is saying in our story today that Dr. Russell's problem is not evidence. It's sin. Specifically the sin of unbelief. Let's be real. We are all surrounded 24 hours a day by powerful evidence of God's existence and God's love for us. I mean, are you breathing right now? Have you ever walked outside at night and looked up? <laughs> we are surrounded 
by powerful evidence of God's existence. But no amount of evidence would help Dr. Russell, and no amount of evidence will help you and me. That's why when the Pharisees asked for a sign, Jesus said what? No. No. Because that's not your problem. (laughs) It wouldn't matter how many signs I did. You see, because of sin, the only thing we really have faith in is ourselves. That's what we place our faith in. We don't think Jesus is a very good king. We think we make much better rulers of our lives than he does. And this goes for Christians and non-Christians, folks. Pharisees and disciples. Even ones who are in the boat with Jesus. And look, I'm as guilty as anyone. I'm as guilty as anyone. I think I'm a pretty good boss of my own life. I know what I'm doing. Now, of course, I'll holler at Jesus if I get in big trouble. But for the most part, I got this. I got it. I'm a better king than Jesus is. And this lack of faith in Jesus is just like cancer. It may start off small, but it will spread. Slowly but surely throughout our souls, causing greater and greater damage to ourselves and to those around us. It will make us bitter and angry and frustrated and irritated with God, with ourselves, and with everyone we meet. It is like a cancer, this unbelief. So, Is there any hope for us? We all have spiritual cancer. Is there a cure? That brings us to our last point in your outline. The real heart of Jesus. The real heart of Jesus. In first century Israel, Jesus was a force to be reckoned with. He had thousands of people following him. He had the attention of the religious leaders and all the political leaders. He was probably the most famous person in the world at this time. And yet... You read a story like this and you realize that he is all alone. He's all alone. Even his closest friends don't know him and have no idea what his mission is. And the religious leaders, the ones who should have been celebrating his coming, they are trying to kill him. He came into the world he created and the world did not recognize him nor want him.
Naomi Wolf wrote a fascinating article about modern culture in the New York Times. And part of the, old, part of the article, she talks about going around all these college campuses and talking to students. And she talks to them about the topic of loneliness. And this is what she says in the article, quote, Mostly, when I ask about loneliness, a deep, sad silence descends on audiences of young men and women alike. Because they know that they're lonely together, even when they're conjoined. What they don't know is how to get out, end quote. You and I, we can't get out either. You see, our sin, this cancer that we have, it causes us to be estranged from God and estranged from one another. It ruins our relationship with our Creator and our relationships with one another, and it leaves us lonely. Even when we're conjoined, we're lonely. And we're stuck. We're stuck. We can't get out of our loneliness. We can't get out of our despair. We can't get out of our anxiety. We can't get out of our unbelief. And we can't get out of our sin. And so Jesus Christ looks at us and he says, I will go all the way into your despair so that I can get you all the way out. Look at verse 2. Jesus says, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. The word compassion here in the Greek is very strong. It's very strong. Jesus is moved to the core of his being for humanity, for you, and for me. I mean, just look at how Jesus responds to the people trying to kill him in verse 12. Look at it. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. What does he say to these people who are trying to kill him, trying to trap him? He doesn't scream at them. He doesn't smack them around. He sighs deeply. He groans within him. He is grieving, don't you see? He is grieving over their unbelief. He has compassion for his enemies. He knows that behind their arrogant self-righteousness is the cancer of sin and unbelief. He knows that. And so Jesus knows good and well they don't need a sign. They don't need a teacher. They don't need a cheerleader. They don't need a life coach. They just like you and just like me, need a Savior, a Rescuer, 
We don't need a moral lesson. We are drowning. We need a rescuer to jump in the water and pull us out. So, in order to bring us out of our sin-caused loneliness, Jesus becomes the loneliest person in the world. Not only in his life, but on the cross, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All of his friends, his disciples, had already left him. But now, now even his heavenly father abandons him. On the cross, Jesus is experiencing the ultimate cosmic loneliness of hell. That is what hell is, by the way. It's cosmic loneliness forever. And Jesus, Jesus plunged himself into those dark waters of loneliness. Why? To pull us out. He did it for you. And he did it for me. He died alone. So that we would never, ever be alone. The Father's precious Son was cast out so that we could be brought in. He was exiled so that we could come home. He took the hell we deserved so that we can get the heaven He deserves. Just as the people in our story today were in a desolate place, maybe you're in a desolate place right now. Emotionally, mentally, or spiritually. But I have come with good news for you today. Things are not as desolate as they seem. Let's read verses 14 through 21. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, It is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still, do you still not understand? Do you have eyes 
would fail to see? Do you have ears would fail to hear? Don't you remember? Don't you remember the loaves that were broken? You see, the Last Supper was not the first time Jesus broke bread for his disciples. No, the first time he did so was just a couple chapters back at the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus broke bread for his disciples and that entire crowd to symbolize his body that would be broken to save them. That would be broken for the forgiveness of sin. Here in verse 16, the disciples thought their problem was that they didn't have any bread. They thought, oh, oh, forgot the bread. <laughs> ah, we don't have any bread. <clears throat> but you see, they had already forgotten about the loaves. They'd already forgotten about the broken bread. They had already forgotten that they had the bread with them <laughs> in the boat. They had the bread of life with them. The bread of life who would be broken to save them. Listen to me if you are in a desolate place today. If you have Jesus in the boat with you and you have absolutely nothing else, then you have more than enough spiritual nourishment and companionship in even the most desolate of places. If you have the bread of life, then you have everything you need. He is, after all, the friend of sinners. And what his disciples did not understand at this time is this is why he came. <laughs> he came to be broken for you and for me. Jesus is saying to us today, remember, remember, remember the loaves broken for you. See with your eyes what I have done for you. And hear with your ears my decree of the forgiveness of all of your sins. As the famous song says, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. There is a cure for our cancer. His name is Jesus. Let us pray together.